Hello, listeners. Before we begin today's episode, I have an important message to share. Throughout this podcast, our guest, Tony Loughram, will occasionally make specific references to his experiences in war zones where he has witnessed some of the more graphic aspects of conflict. We want you to know this in advance to avoid causing any offence or upset. If you are triggered by any part of our conversation, please contact the relevant counselling support group in your country. Thank you. When you read a bio that comes across with the words anti-terrorism, counter-terrorism, Green Beret, conflict zones, evacuations, Afghanistan, refugees and Taliban, you know there is an extraordinary story about to unfold. I'm Karen Sander, the host of Sharing Stories, Changing Lives, the podcast where we share true stories about the lives of our guests. And at the age of 18, my guest today stepped a long way out of his comfort zone to begin a journey into a career that most of us would have second thoughts about choosing. Welcome to Sharing Stories, Changing Lives. The host, Karen Sander, is on a mission to provide listeners with a unique podcast experience that inspires and entertains, offering insights and perspectives that may positively influence their lives. On this platform, Karen has the privilege of interviewing individuals from all walks of life, each with their own powerful and inspiring stories you won't find anywhere else. The guests open their hearts and minds to share their life experiences, and in doing so, they celebrate the remarkable impact of real tales, genuine connections, and authentic individuals. Listeners are invited to join Karen on this journey as she explores the untold stories that can truly make a difference in their lives. At the Sharing Stories, Changing Lives podcast, they wholeheartedly believe in the transformative magic of storytelling. To learn more, they can visit www.thestoryroom.au and explore their private membership area, the Backstage Pass. Welcome, Tony, and congratulations, firstly, on your book, Zero Risk, Keeping Others Safe in a Dangerous World. Thank you, Karen. It's, it's so nice to be with you on this program. And uh, yes, I've, uh, the, the book has been finished after two years of labour and uh, a lot of go to and fro with the editor. <clears throat> Was that a bit like the, the maternal labour, giving birth to a baby? <laughs> Oh, it was, and it was, kind of tra- it was, and kind of just as equally traumatic, to be honest with you. Um, there was a lot of kind of highs and lows and squeals with delight when obviously kind of we got it right and whatever you, uh, but even down to the title, uh, it was interesting when we started to kind of discuss it and kind of get round, you know, get our heads around what we want to do. And I always wanted zero risk because uh, that's how I started really is trying to create zero risk. Never can do it really, but at the end of the day, you know, we were pushing everybody to actually get there. So um, that's it. That's the, the start of the book, really. Yeah, it's amazing, and it must have felt great when you actually got that first version published <laughs> and in your hands. It's like, yeah, that's my baby. It, it, it was it was interesting because for those who have actually been through the process, you know, of developing the book, you go through, you go through this incredible kind of moment of kind of uh, absolute kind of fury and, and fast paced kind of energy. And then it stops while the editor, you know, turns around and unpacks different things and sends it back to you. Then you bring it back again. So I did that. And then when they arrived at the doorstep, I was like, oh, my God, you know, here they are. They're all all here. But the biggest thrill, to be perfectly honest with you, I've had recently is uh, is actually being kind of uh, doorstepped uh, in W.H. Smith's bookstore in the airport uh, when people recognize me from the photograph in the book and ask me to sign their copies. <laughs> oh, my God, isn't that fantastic? Wow, that that's a real, you know, recognizable celebrity. Yeah, well, I, I, I didn't expect it, but then all of a sudden W.A. Smith's staff came across and they, they bought the books from their own store and asked me to sign them. I was, like, just really thrilled. It was fantastic. Oh, that's entry. amazing. Look, I do hear an accent there, and I'm going to guess that you're a Liverpudlian or a Scouser from the northwest of England, but I want you to shed some light on your story growing up in the northwest of England and the motivation 
at the age of 18 to run off and join the Navy? Well, first of all, Karen, you're spot on with that because it's I do, I do come from Liverpool, like, and it's uh, yeah, and I joined the <laughs> navy as well. <laughs> wow, your accent just changed completely. <laughs> uh, it's a, it's a great question. I think that um, it's it's one of those magical moments where someone says, "Where did it start?" Okay, how did you actually kind of get on this journey? And my life in Liverpool was was very interesting because on one hand, I, I really didn't get on with my dad, and it was really tough. But on the other hand, I actually think I had the best childhood ever. I wasn't, you know, my mum and dad just said to me, like, you know, go out and there you go and enjoy yourself. And I'd be like, you know, did that throw me a football and tell me to get out of the house? Or I'd get on the push bike and I'd cycle 20K and I wouldn't come back. You know, I'd be back at 11 o'clock at night. So we were able to get up to all kinds of things. And it's kind of funny because we struggle with the kids nowadays, like, you know, letting them get off the leash. But to me, it was the gangs that I got involved in. It was the little kind of fiefdoms. It was the, I never, never really went for the girlfriend side of it. I was always kind of involved in, you know, the boys activities, you know? So I think at one stage, like on a canal, uh, we actually commandeered a boat as well and we fixed it up ourselves and claimed it as our own, you know? So it's quite funny going up and down the canal with this kind of shabby little boat with all kinds of nails in it as well. <laughs> Amazing that life was a very free time you know, I'm a little bit older than you, but the freedoms that we had in the 60s, yeah, very different to today. It is. And it's it's a bit of a shame, really, because I, I think you've got to try and give your kids a lot of trust. And I know they let you down. I know they kind of tell lies and they kind of, you know, don't tell you the, the real version of what's going on. But I do come back to my days, you know, and I agree with you, you know. I, I kind of had my life really kickstarted at the age of five and, you know, talk about it in the book as well. And we had these amazing schemes, like where at the end of the day, we'd build these big snow walls to cut off the street because it was really cold in Liverpool. And as the cars were coming to approach, what we'd do is we'd charge the guy with the car to come through the snow wall. <laughs> so, so we used to get all this money, you know. And it was like things like that, you know, and the other thing that happened to me was that I used to ask my mom and dad if I could go camping over nighttime. And they were thinking, wow, it's great. He's getting them out the house. But what they didn't know is I was actually going to the farmer's field and robbing the carrots and the turnips and everything and then selling them to the vegetable shops like, you know, so, <laughs> you're probably the same deal. <laughs> oh, no, Tony, you're just bringing back my father and my raids on the Chinese gardens on a Friday night <laughs> to feed our horses. Oh, my God. And like, my father didn't go to jail. I, yeah, but he exactly. talked, look, you just brought so many memories back. Can I share another one? I know this is your story, but yeah, no, you no, talked about you're allowed to run around. My father had a saying that, you know, the reins are yours until yeah. you do the wrong thing and then those reins will be pulled so tight. We had horses. Those reins will be pulled so tight you won't know what's gone on. Well, I, I love that saying, actually. And I'm going to go one further than that. I'm going to turn around and say that, uh, unfortunately for me, by the age of 16, I'd bolted <laughs> as a horse. <laughs> I thought to myself, like, you know, the reins, were, the reins weren't really pulled in, but they were, it was kind of inconsistent, uh, Karen, as you can appreciate. Like, you know, my, my dad was like a Jekyll and Hyde, really. Uh, and I really, I didn't have that stability. My mum was doing a great job looking after me. Um, but at the end of the day, she went out and did a job. My dad actually kind of fell down a hatch in work when he was, a, you know, he was only about 35, I think, at the time. And, um, you know, he never really worked after that. It's kind of weird. And so there's my mum earning the money. And there's us trying to get to school on our own and, uh, you know, looking after ourselves as well. And then coming in at three o'clock in the afternoon and finding my dad drunk in the garden, you know. So yeah. these are all the moments. And it's funny because a lot of people have got the same experience. It's it's weird that I'm certainly our age as well, like, you know, so it's, it's interesting. But you said the horse had bolted at 16. Yeah. Then what happened at 18 to make you choose the Navy? Yeah, I, I write about it in the book, actually, and there's, some, there's a couple of key moments for me, and they're really funny. Uh, one of them was uh, I was always getting in trouble. I was kind of – I had this big gang that I used to knock around with, and we used to kind of steal motorbikes and strip them down and sell parts and all that stuff, and that's what we used to do. Family never, ever found out about it. We were always doing it in the background. Neither did the police either. <laughs> exactly. The police attended one of my mates' funerals and uh, they raided the house during the funeral to find out where the stolen parts were, like in us. <laughs> it's kind of weird. And 
and I think the other one was I, I was uh, I started off in a club in Liverpool, a Catholic club, where you pick up glasses and you kind of you bring them back to the bar, like and so it was, it was called a pot lad. That was my the name of the of the time anyway. And of course, what happened was I, I then worked myself into the bar at the age of sixteen, I think it was. So I'm working behind the bar and I'm pulling pints and that. And this guy turns up and he's got two lovely girls on his arms and he pulls out this big wad of cash and he starts buying everyone drinks. And I went, "Wow, is this guy a billionaire?" And someone said, "No." He's, he's joined the Navy. He's been in the Navy for the last two years. And I went, I want that job. <laughs> that, was, <laughs> that was it. Because I just thought to myself, like, you know, I didn't have a, you know, as they say, a, post, a, a pot to piss in. You know, I've kind of really struggled. And from my point of view, I, I also had the influence of my uncle taking me away to Malta when I was a kid. So I had that particular kind of thing about travel and I traveled to the Lake District. Lake District was my go-to place when I wanted to get away from all of the hassles of Liverpool. And uh, all of a sudden, like, you know, I just knew I needed to travel, but I wasn't going to get it within Liverpool. And the funny thing is, this is another interesting one. Uh, everyone said in Liverpool, okay, you've got to go to join the gyro. Now the gyro was like this big institution like Westpac. And uh, when I went in there, uh, I did the test and I was so nervous. And the test was... Within 60 minutes, okay, sorry, sorry, three minutes, you have to have filed so many different folders and put them in the right alphabetical order and all that stuff. You know, this is before kind of computers and that. And I failed miserably. (laughs) And so I didn't get the job. But then I joined up and I wrote the letter back to the head of the branch. He was he was a bit of an bit of an ass as well. And I wrote back to him and I said, you you did the best thing ever for me, making me fail. Because, you know, I would never have liked to work in a clerical job like that, nine to five, clocking on, clocking off, you know, waiting for the paper clips to arrive. No, thank you. I'm, I'm off. Yeah. You know, and that was it. I headed for the hills. Yay. Yeah. Well, it's like one door closed and the other one opened. But you really, you went into the Navy. Can you share a bit about the Navy and your role in the Navy and even how long you actually stayed in the Navy? I did. um it's an interesting kind of uh, career path because I I passed the examinations. I, I'd failed every single qualification going, okay? So my dad actually thought I was a dunce and all that stuff, like, you know. But I actually kind of wanted to prove him wrong. So I did the basic training, first of all, for six weeks. And I found it a breeze because I'd, I'd come from a school of hard knocks anyway. So it didn't really matter to me about kind of making sure things were okay and you're ironing and whatever. And that's a good thing is that some of the what they call husbandry, which is sewing things you know, ironing and doing all that stuff. It came second nature to me because I already kind of learned that anyway, you know, at home. But the interesting thing was I found kids struggled in the mess quarters, as they called them anyway, you know, because they came from kind of really weird homes. They came from farms where they were just secluded, didn't have any particular street skills. So there's 30 kids in bed, you know, kind of coughing and farting and spluttering and all that stuff in the same room. And I was like, you know, how do I get on here? Yeah, it must have been pretty pongy. <laughs> it, it was. It was terrible. You know, and, and they had this weird thing as well. So they, went, they used to come down and do the rounds. And what used to happen was that, you know, you'd leave your stuff on the bed. And they found this one guy had actually kind of soiled his undies. So they threw his undies out the window. And they made him crawl outside to go and get his undies. And they made him wear them on his head for a couple of hours after. <laughs> oh, it's like the initiation things. <laughs> yeah, I know. It was terrible. But, but I passed that and I, I was really happy. And, and I got on a bus and boarded it for Portsmouth. So I went from Plymouth to Portsmouth. And I got to Portsmouth and um, everyone was getting off the bus and there was the submariners there that were going to train to be in the submarines. There was the weapons engineers to another college. And there we saw the Neapolitan sorry, Neapolitan uh, hospital um, of uh, RNAS Hasler, Royal Naval Hospital, and RNH Hasler, sorry. And it's this massive kind of sandstone building, which was just incredible. And I remember kind of standing there, you know, to attention kind of thing, like, you know, and I'm thinking, oh, my God, this is where it, the hard bit starts. And this window flies up, like, and there's a guy there, and he's got his... Uh, He's actually exposing himself, you know, with everything in the front. And he starts to sing, you know, some, I don't know what, what the song was like, you know, I think it was Brown Girl in the Ring or whatever, Boney M. And uh, the actual chief shouts up to him, like, you know, get out that window, bust up. Like, you know, this guy was leaving the Navy because he didn't like it. And he turned out to be one of my best mates, actually, because uh, he was a real, you know, anti-establishment kind of guy. Uh, but funny, you know, very quirky. And But I just thought, what have I done? What have I come to this institution kind of thing? Like, you know, and so what happened was I then immersed myself into medical skills and knowledge. 
And it was quite interesting, actually, because I didn't know this, but I got a very, very high score uh, in my particular medical, um, the passing test anyway, uh, the, sorry, the, the uh, education test, which put me into the category of medic. And the medic itself, what was there and then at the time, is you were to train to this very high standard. It, it was a, a hugely advanced paramedic slash doctor. And what the Navy were going to do is put all of us on ships and bring some of the actual surgeon commanders back into the bases so you could actually kind of have a, a hookup if you needed additional help or whatever. Uh, so I studied like nobody's business. Like, you know, I was like diving into my books. All the other guys who were really educated and that, they were going out of a nighttime and having a great time and I was left behind, you know. And so I did it and I actually passed. I didn't pass first time round, but when I did pass, I actually got, uh, again, uh, an award, you know. So it was from the actual the, um, surgeon commander from the Navy. He gave me this award, which was beautiful. And I'd made it, you know, and my dad called me, you know, Sarah, dare I say it on air, but he called me a gobshite and said at the end of the day, you know, you'd never pass this and you never do that and you're a bit of a failure. But I proved him wrong. I kind of, you know, I kind of put it up to the establishment. So I needed yeah. to do that. Really. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and well, congratulations. It's pretty amazing. And did you stay in the Navy for very long? I actually did for a little while. It was only maybe about a year year and a half. I went down to Plymouth and did some extended training there for the medical side of it. Um, but what happened to me is quite remarkable. And they always say in life, there's always a mentor. There's always somebody who actually kind of come into your life for a reason. And this guy did, a guy called Dave Poole. And he called me up and he, go, and he goes, Scouse is my nickname from Liverpool. <laughs> I said, yeah, what do you want, like? And he just turned around and he goes, uh, look, you got the actual the, uh, Navy medal uh, for, you know, the best student making on your particular course. Uh, you've been recognized for your medical skills. Um, we're really desperate in the commando world to bring in commando medics. And, but you, I said, how do we do that then? Do we just sign up and you get the certificate? And he goes, oh, no. <laughs> he goes, now, nah, you have to do the commando course to get your Green Beret. And I said, what does that entail? He goes, I'd rather not tell you. He goes, because I think at the end of the day, you know, you just go. So I, I kind of, I did a bit of training for it. I was really fit at the time, like, you know, naturally fit. And I've always, you know, had a, had a good um, uh, knack for that. And the passing test or the beat up it's called lasts for quite a few weeks, like, you know, and, and it, it's, it, it, it kind of prepares you to become uh, eligible to go on the commando course. And of course, when I got on the commando course, the first day is called the beasting down at the bottom field. And it's literally between six and 12 hours of just getting hammered, you know, with full blown physical fitness. And I'm talking about lifting two people on your back, running across the actual, you know, the, um, the call of fireman's lift with the weapons and all that stuff, running across the actual football field, coming back, press ups, burpees and everything else for that matter. And at the end of it, to be honest with you, Karen, I remember looking up at a few people and just watching them vomiting and kind of having this horrible kind of saliva down and they were just like flogged horses <laughs> oh my god it sounds like no wonder he didn't want to tell you what you're up for <laughs> yeah i know and it was the winter as well so now is the winter of discontent which it was but it was great i really enjoyed it it was hard work and i got the commando medal which i never even realized existed it was remarkable it was you know standing there at the end of the training and they take this shitty little hat off you and it's full of all kinds of things like, you know, because you've been on exercise all the time and they throw it away and they put the green beret on you and they shape it to your head. Like, you know, so it's, it's this magical moment and it's a very prestigious club that mm -hmm. not many people are in, but also on top of that, they then shouted out my official staff number. And as they finished it, they asked me to step two steps forward. And I did. And then they turned around and said, we're awarding you with the commando medal because what you did during the course was you dragged everyone through whether someone was struggling or whatever it was, but I didn't even know that. Honestly, it was one of those things for me, <coughs> keeping others safe, you know, which is what the actual theme of the book is really. And we passed and then I didn't rest because then the guy, then Dave called me again, ding, ding. And he <laughs> says, Hey, Tony, he goes, you did well. Well done, my son. You know, you've actually got your commando medal, got your green beret, uh, training staff think highly of you. We're putting you into the mountain Arctic warfare Carter, which is a, an elite climbing group. Uh, and I then just went from strength to strength. I just loved it. It was outdoors. It was snow and ice climbing. It was skiing. It was all the stuff I loved and high, high level parachuting as well. Um, which was just fantastic. It was like boys own really. So that was it. Yeah. How old were you then? I was, when I did the commando course, I was 25 years of age. So you've been in the Navy for uh, seven years. 
yeah, roughly about seven years, and uh, carried on going. Uh, finished off for about uh, for about ten or eleven years, and then what I did was I did the reservist list at the end for a couple of years as well, which is just a a continuation of the other thing because they needed people to stay in the reserves at that time because they were expecting the Gulf War to kick off as well. I want you to describe yourself. You know, you've got a a unique combination of roles as a risk consultant and someone who's spent decades in conflict zones and high-risk environments. So what are your core principles and values um, that have guided you in your career and your personal life? It's a big question. That is a, that is a cracking question, Karen. Thank you very much for that. That's exciting for the afternoon. My, my brain's... Uh, yeah, I love it. Um, first and foremost, I think that I think that leadership has always been very strong in my particular DNA, you know, and it may not have been from my family's generation. Humor, humor is huge. You know, I yeah. love, you know, I'm always kind of, I was, when I was in Washington last week, I was always just cracking jokes all the time and that, you know, and remembering things and, yeah. I, and I like kind of doing impressions as well. And maybe that's what got me by on the commando course as well, was that, you know, lifting people up with humor. Yeah. But, but I think that apart from the leadership side of it, there's a big thing with me with instinct. You know, I'm pretty uh, good at actually sussing out a situation, figuring out, you know, when something's starting to go down, what's the plan B, C, D, and E, if you know what I mean? So you're actually kind of thinking it all the time. Um, So I've always done that. And I've always tried to get the best out of people as well to make them feel comfortable, to to be actually feeling uh, that they are worth something. Okay. And and this comes on to the stuff that we're doing now with the parents and child survival courses to make them bond. But my instinct really is at the end of the day um, is to not only get the job done, but to have fun. Okay. And I say to my team, like, you know, if, if you, if you can't come in and, and laugh at yourself and laugh at everybody else as well, then you're not really worth it for us. You know, if you're going to be serious about yourself all the time, if you're going to really analyze everything, if you're going to kind of, you know, constantly bitch about people and take people apart, sorry, no can do. Okay. Because we build, we build our particular strength from the company point of view on characters, you know, and I've always felt that I've actually picked the right people. Um, well, not always, but 99.9%. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and I'm loyal. I'm fiercely loyal. So at the end of the day, someone does right by me, I'll do right by them, you know, and I believe in karma, you know, and, and I think at the end of the day, that really is uh, a feature for me as a character. Yeah. Um, and I always get the job done. That That's something else as well, is that, you know, for instance, if at the end of the day, uh, we're getting, as an example, really, Karen, you know, getting somebody out of Afghanistan, okay, it's a lot of graft and hard, hard effort as well, because you're constantly contacting everybody to do this job. And again, a beautiful moment in Washington last week when I met the, one of the refugees that we got out uh, in February 22. And we give us each other the biggest hug because, and he, and he broke down and he just turned around and he goes, Mr. Tony, he says, you were the one that called everybody. You were the one that chased everybody and tracked me with my family and <coughs> gave me advice about everything, did this and did that, you know? So that, that really kind of resonates with me because you got the job done. You know, we didn't have much in the way of kind of uh, support or whatever, but we found it. And it's resourcefulness. It's kind of, you know, flying by the seat of your pants, uh, the smell of an oily rag, all of those little cliches come out. And that's exactly what we did, you know, from that point of view, which is in the book. (laughs) Awesome. Well, you know, I'm going to have to get a copy of this book. But, but Tony, can you tell us what a day or a week, whatever, you know, give us an idea what it's like to be in a place like Afghanistan? Mm, Okay. Yep, sure, sure. Um, I'll pick Afghanistan. I've got many places that I've been to, even recently in Israel and places like that, really, where, you know, everything starts to to unfold. Um, but let me take up Afghanistan. Um, Afghanistan's an interesting place because I've always had a passion for the people of Afghanistan. Okay, they, they're beautiful people. And there's restaurants around Sydney where you can walk in and you can still have a chat with these guys and girls. And I had one up in uh, Avalon, actually, funny enough, in Northern Beaches, where I went in there and uh, I, I told this guy I was going to Kabul. And he goes, oh, my God. He goes, I, I so want to go back there. I so want to go back there. He's kind of sad. And I said, I'll do what I'll do for you. I'll bring back some pakuls for you, which are the kids, you know, the hats, yeah, yeah. the flat hats. 
So I brought them back and he was just absolutely, you know, so grateful and thankful. You know, it was just amazing. But if you, I'll give you an idea of the journey. So often what I used to do is I go, I used to go from Pakistan and go in on a small aircraft and fly over the top of the Hindu Kush, which is extremely high. And then the, the plane would actually dive down steeply uh, to hit the tarmac. And uh, often it was snow, ice and everything else around you. <clears throat> so as soon as you landed, you get out and it's cold as well. Like, you know, you can feel the cold and uh, you try and make it to the first part of the airport. And the problem is, is the vulnerable points really, Karen, on the airport are the first, second and third part. So it's, it's traveling between the three corridors, as they call them anyway, because you either get mortared, rounds used to come in and mortar at the airport, uh, or some of the police were Taliban and they'd open fire, you know, around there. Oh, really? Yeah. So I was always conscious of the fact that I tried to get to my vehicle as soon as possible. And my, I wouldn't even wait for my driver to give me a hug. Like, you know, I'd literally throw my bag in the car. And what would happen for me was that um, he would look at me and he'd give me the nod, like, you know, and he'd say, you know, in other words, we'll, we'll have a hug when we get in. But then you ride in shotgun because the first roundabout you come to is suicide roundabout where uh, Islamic State recently in the last couple of years have detonated so many bombs around there because the all the traffic comes to a choke point because uh, it's going into the airport, you know. So you're keeping your fingers crossed, you're keeping your get yourself tucked in there and you're watching everything that's going on. You're watching the motorbikes that are coming alongside you. You're watching whether you're being clocked, you know, by uh, dickers, as they call them, or spotters. And uh, as you come to Masood roundabout, which is the tail end of the a long stretch of road there, uh, <clears throat> and you're constantly trying to look at your plan B. And plan B in, in this occasion is um, if you get, if your car gets hit, we used to be able to get out and get to the other side of the, the tarmac, so to speak, or the, the road the traffic that's going in and grab a car. It doesn't matter how you get it, whether you throw somebody out of the vehicle or whatever, or you hotwire it or whatever, and to get the vehicle back you know, to safety. So that was the drill. Um, but then when you get into your compound, uh, these are uh, concrete walls that are something like six foot thick, and they are like 18 foot high. They are so solid to sustain a, a car bomb, the biggest of car bombs anyway, and they're called uh, Healy Blocks. And, and, and it's interesting because what happens is that just overnight you could be doing something and you look up and you think, hang on a sec, what's happened here? And a pillbox has been put in position by a huge, big, heavy crane, big concrete pillbox. And around you where we were, we had the Americans and they had all of these guns mounted uh, down the road. And what was said to us is that if anything happens, do not come out because the Americans will just let loose with all these rounds, you know, to hit Taliban if they were kind of advancing towards the embassy. Um, and in one winter when I was there, it was horrendous. Now, I've done Arctic warfare a lot, many, many years anyway, with my old uh, mountain Arctic warfare team. But I got into this house and when I got in, I went, oh, my God, I forgot that the houses were made of marble and stone. And what's happened is, is everything has frozen. It was literally minus 30 in Kabul, a real bad cold snap. And, you know, the toilets were frozen, everything's frozen. So I literally spent my time there, which was about a month altogether, um, trying to figure out what to do. You know, we, we were gathering wood. We were trying to kind of, you know, get the fire going. And at the same time, I'm trying to do some training with a couple of guys and getting out on the road. Everything froze. It was miserable. And I ended up going down with a really bad chest infection because the streets themselves, um, what happens is, is when you get that particular turning point from cold to hot, um, the dust itself, it contains all of the E. coli from human excretion. So this goes in your lungs and it starts to form a really bad bacteria in your lungs. And so I had that and, you know, working in the mountains was quite high. Um, and you're constantly looking. And the thing I find remarkable is that some of the kids themselves who have lost limbs through the actual mines and that, they whip up and down on these wooden trolleys and you, all you can see is hands coming past your window and asking for money. It's not like, you know, you get beggars in Thailand and different places like that where you can see the faces. You just get hands. And then you look down and you can see them on these trolleys and they literally can go between the cars. You know, so it's, yeah, it's pretty, pretty full on. And you're not painting a great picture of life in Afghanistan, but what's, you know, what's your blood pressure doing? I mean, how, your highs and lows, like, 
Yeah. How do you, as a person, control your emotions and how you feel, your anxiety, your fear? It's probably training, but you can can you explain? Please explain. Yeah. Look, I think it's it's worthwhile. You know, it's, it's worthwhile putting it into context. Is that you know you're constantly on a high. I'm going to say on a high, high alert. You know, you're constantly kind of your ears are up, your eyes are up, you're having to look around everywhere, and it's just you can see things. You can see things in the distance. You can see, you know, sometimes women are coming towards you with babies, like, and you're already thinking that that's a device. Something's happened, like, you know, there's kind of a, a an IED in there, improvised explosive device, or there's a vehicle that stops, or there's a vehicle breaks, or there's a door that opens quickly, or whatever. So you're constantly kind of on edge. But my worst one was the last, till 2014, when I was uh, investigating the death of a guy. And uh, I ended up in a hospital. And it was kind of an innocuous visit because I just wanted to find out really about the medical arrangements um, there. And uh, because expats were getting turned away when they were being injured. And I went in there and I knew, I just had this weird feeling because my, my driver got separated from me completely. And I knew that I was heading for some form of abduction. You know, so it really started roll with me one room you know quick chat interrogation second room interrogation again like you know but they were very rarely speaking english they were trying to shout things at me and pashtun so we kept on going and going and going <clears throat> and i knew the final one the final room was close to the wall because i kind of got my orientation right and i knew there was a car outside and that was going to go up to a place called the Wardak province which is where some of the actual guys that were have been in for six months or whatever have been there for a while. Um, and some of them had their Achilles tendons slashed as well, so they couldn't run. So that was one of the actual Taliban tricks, really. But coming back to the blood pressure side of it, when you feel that at the end of the day, you know, you, you can you can actually kind of feel something going wrong, the problem is, is that it's flight, fright, or fear. You know, it's that kind of adrenaline dump that happens in your body. And I could feel my pulse race, you know, racing going through the roof. So the first thing you have to do is to try and really calm down and believe in yourself that you actually are going to make it out of that particular situation. And I did, and I kind of kept on going, kept on going, and I just could see that I needed to fight my way through to the front of the building and enjoy my driver again, ready to actually kind of take off or whatever. But it was hard work because for every one step you took, you know, you took two steps back, you know, something would happen or whatever. And in the end, you know, I, I was really forceful uh, to the point that, you know, I was, I was quite aggressive towards them. But at the same time, you know, I had to keep my wits about me and we have to do breathing. You know, you have to get your right breathing control mechanisms. You get you try to get your adrenaline to drop a bit so you can be more rational thought and also process as well. <laughs> so that's how you kind of, you, you do things. And my, uh, my beautiful partner, she actually kind of got me involved in uh, yoga and uh, meditation. And it's funny because I asked Peter Grester about his time in prison, the journalist, the Australian journalist, 14 months in prison in Egypt. And he said to me, his key factors were vitamins, yoga, and meditation. He said, without a shadow, it got him through the whole thing, like, you know. So, um, yeah. And that's something these days. I mean, they talk more and more about breath work and meditation just in everyday life and how important it is in, you know, bringing out the best of yourself, you know, in, and yeah. and being in a situation, I, you know, look, that's a really intense situation. Can I just mention one point, if I may? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because when you talk about breath work, okay, what we were taught as well, which is an interesting one from the military, is before you fire a weapon, okay, if you've got the chance to do this, you take at least three breaths, okay, in, out, okay, and that's breath work, okay, because at the end of the day, what happens is it does lower your blood pressure to be able to start returning fire, okay? And you're more accurate that way. That's been proven. Mm. And breath work had a role to play, without a shadow of a doubt, like from a defense mechanism point of view. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. It's, you know, it's important information. And, and you know, you, you're doing anything that's high stress. Mm. Um, you know, it's often, you know, it's often good to walk away, just center yourself and then and then move on. And uh, there's a funny story I'll tell you when I met you in person about being on stage at the last show and what I did, but that's not the story today. You're in these very intense, high-risk environments. How does Tony Loughran come back and live in the real world? <laughs> You're actually kind of popping all the good questions at the moment. Uh, yeah, that's a, that's a cracker. Um, sometimes it's quite difficult. 
because psychologically you've still got images playing through your mind. You know, my last one coming back from Israel, although I kind of didn't declare it straight away, but it was one of these images that the Israelis themselves had bombed Janine. And I went to take a photograph of a lady with her baby, you know, simple photograph, excuse me, but a baby was actually kind of staring up at the sky. And I thought the baby was actually disabled, but it wasn't. It was traumatized by the blasts that were going on over there. You know, so to me, I, I've had that many a time, sadly, you know, throughout my career as well, whether it's in Africa, whether it's in, you know, um, India, different other places in earthquakes. And, and when you come back, the first thing I think, of, to be perfectly honest with you, is I think how bloody blessed we are to live in a country where we can go in the ocean. Where, where you know, I talk to people in Afghanistan, they've never seen the ocean. Mm. Do you know yep. what I mean? So it's things like that that you think, and, and some people don't even have antibiotics. Some people don't even have a doctor. So for me, I, co I come in and I go, wow, I, I am living the life, the dream. Thank you very much, Australia, for providing me with a great ticket. You know, and I've, I've enjoyed every single second of it. But the way I de-stress really is I'm into music, you know, so I can play, uh, <laughs> I may say badly, so I play the guitar, sing a bit you know, and try and see if I can normalize certain things anyway, as best I can. But I try and get back into exercise, try and get back into some form of routine. And, and I try and talk about these experiences because when I was at the BBC, I, I invented the group counseling sessions as well after Bosnia and Croatia and Chechnya. And what we found was that was the best thing to do, Karen, is just be able to get things off your chest talk about things like in a, in a rational way. And you often didn't need to go to a counselor because you'd really, you kind of normalize things as best way you can. Um, you know, so I've been blessed with a really good family that's really understood what I've needed to do, uh, from that point of view. But I, I believe in swimming, I believe in activity, you know, things that really, uh, matter a lot to me and my kids as well. My kids are, are really, you know, super, super important for me. Are you always looking over your shoulder? Funny you should say that. Um, yes, I think I am. I think not not on a, I wouldn't say not on a, a highly regular basis, but certainly when I come back for the first couple of months, I'm always kind of weary of certain things. And I drive in a very different way as well. And that's interesting. <clears throat> I think I drive more aggressively. When you because I know, Yeah, I feel it. You know, I feel I need to actually get to a certain point. And that way, like, you know, if someone's trying to cut you up or whatever, like, you know, I'll try and get in front or, you know, because I know for a fact that sometimes like, you know, some of the vehicles are, or try and sorry, leave a gap or whatever, uh, because I know sometimes the vehicles have tried to follow me in different countries. <clears throat> so it's a very different situation. When I come back, you know, I'm, I'm constantly looking on my shoulder and it's funny because I talk to other people and I don't know, some people actually kind of pick up all these habits from films. And they tell their wives, like, you know, no, no, sorry, I need to look, you know, outside the window to make sure that everything's going on and I need to do this and I need to do that. But I can so get it because I never, you know, if, if I cannot do it, I never try and have my back um, to the window uh, because we had a situation in Belfast years ago and they used to call it the, the chair that never, ever anyone sat in afterwards. And it was the headshot chair. So the guy sat there and all of a sudden around the bullet went to the back of his head and that was it. Oh. So the, head, the headshot chair was like, you know, it's, it's empty. It's in respect for this guy that died and no one goes in there. Yeah. Has, have the police ever pulled you up here and you've said, oh, sorry, I've just come back from Afghanistan and I'm just driving defensively. <laughs> I think, I, you know what? I think it's an interesting one because I think I was, I was actually speeding one day and I, um, Oh, I said a combination of things. Uh, it was uh, the Spit Bridge. I was coming up over there and a copper stopped me. This is a really good story, actually, because he stopped me and he had all his leathers on with his motorbike. And he turned around and he goes, mate, what are you doing? What are you doing, mate? <laughs> I was like, what? He goes, you're doing 20 and a 40. Or, you know, sorry, you're doing 40 and a 20 and blah, blah, blah. You know, that little approach to the bridge, whatever it was, the speed. So I said to him, I said, look, I've got a lot of things on my mind, mate. I said, I'll just come back from, I think I came back from uh, Israel at the time, like, you know, I was doing an investigation over there. <clears throat> I was telling him a little bit about the investigation. And then I said to him, I said, I've just lost my brother because my brother had just passed away, like, you know, so I really found it hard to, to, to cope with that. And you know what he did? This is unbelievable. He just looked at me and he turned around to me and he gave me the license back and he started crying. Oh, really? His copper started crying. And I said to him, I said, sorry, mate, like, you know, I'm just really choked up. Like, you know, I'm trying to get from here to there. And I said, I just feel really kind of a wreck and I haven't got my eye on the road. And he said to me, I've just lost my father. <clears throat> so 
we had that real connection, you know, and I think in US forces and all that stuff. And he just said to me, mate, just watch yourself, just watch yourself. Like, well, does anyone else would have just turned around and gone, there's your ticket and that's it. You know? Yeah, exactly. But it was the, the right person to pull you up at that particular moment and you to share the story. Yeah. And I think my brother was looking down on me that day and going like that. Yeah. <laughs> hey, Tony, I'll get you out of this one. <laughs> Can you get me out of the rest too? Eat me up, Scotty. (laughs) Oh, I love it. Um, 18-year-old Tony. Yeah. Yeah. What would you tell him today? I would say that he made the best choice ever. Okay. From my point of view, there's a couple of things I'd say is that number one is that he made the best choice ever because because he followed the path that was least worn. Okay, because everybody in Liverpool at the time, and my friends are going to hate me for this, but they'd followed the same path. They really wouldn't break tradition. And little did I know, there was something like 750,000 people left Liverpool when I left that year. So That's something tough. was going wrong. Yeah, exactly. Something was going wrong. Um, but I would tell myself that I, I definitely did make that right turn at the time. But what I would say to myself is just watch out for the road ahead because whilst I <clears throat> embraced everything with my military career, with my other things that were going on and many, many things, just I, I've had an amazing life. But I look back and I think to myself, like my personal life, you know, has been a bit of a train wreck. And, you know, I often think to myself, like, did I give them, like, did I give enough energy to a relationship? Like, you know, how could I have been a, a better communicator? in my own personal life, like, you know, but I think that I was so, I was so immersed in my work that I didn't have time for anything. And it was the situation of me in defense, for instance, going away for six months of the year or nine months, whatever it was, you know, and coming back and thinking to myself, my God, there goes another relationship. Like, you know, next, (laughs) you know, and the thing is, it's not so much for me. It causes heartache for everybody else. You know, ex partners and kids. Yeah. And I look at that today and I think to myself, if I was got anything to say to the kids nowadays, is don't rush in to have a family with kids unless you're 100% sure that you feel that you as a partnership, okay, I've got a good chance of making it. Because there's a lot of, you know, I think, what do they call it now? It's now 60% of Australian couples have split up. And I think it's something like 25% of, of Australian couples or 40% have split up on the second go, you know? So it's not a good statistic, you know? But at the same time, I think it's the kid factor. That's what I'd say to myself is look look ahead and look to yourself and go like, you know, do not actually do it because the kids deserve better, you know, out of families, out of mums and dads and out of support and all that stuff. And, you know, and the other thing I'll say as well as an 18-year-old kid is if you're having relationships for the future, let it be for a bit, okay? Don't run in and certainly don't go in on rebounds, okay? Because I found myself doing that because I was looking for kind of emotional support because I'd never had it as a kid, you know? But if you have had a problem childhood or whatever, is don't just keep grabbing at relationships because you think it's there to save you, okay? you got to work. So they're my thoughts, really. <laughs> How important is emotional intelligence in our lives today? I think it's super important, actually, because you can get devoid of any particular contact with anybody, uh, any particular kind of situation as well. <clears throat> and that makes you kind of vulnerable. Uh, if you're emotionally intelligent, what you can do is you can actually kind of, you can you can guess and and look at foresight and look at kind of, vision uh with emotional intelligence you know and i could see that in kids now because you know as kids i've got a daughter who you know has been through quite a bit at the age of 15 16 as most parents have and there's no two ways about it and that the emotional intelligence is not really there so you can see it from a naivety point of view but i found that my going from 40 to 60 <coughs> my emotional intelligence grew it really did, like, you know, and I think it was probably to do with the actual things I've been submersed in. Um, but I felt that I still had, and everybody should never, ever stand still. Everyone has the chance to grow. Uh, but emotional intelligence for me uh, was super important because I was able to kind of slow things down and start to figure out what's going on in relationships, what's going on with my working life. 
and also situations that I've actually got, you know, in, in different, different, difficult areas, really. When you were writing the book, um, were there any instances or uh, things that you were writing about that were really hard to revisit? So it's a cracker of a question, and, and it happened to me quite a lot on the journey when I was writing the book. But um, um, gosh, uh, maybe one moment in particular um, happened uh, when I was a young kid, eighteen years of age in Belfast, and literally what happened was uh, he took a, a bullet to the head, and. Um, what I, what I tried to do is I tried to patch him up as best I could. Um, I kind of intubated him. Uh, I kind of pulled the tube up like this and there was blood running from his head into his lungs. So he was drowning on his own blood. And then I was putting kind of needles in his veins and nothing to get, uh, and I got some good, good, uh, fluids through, but uh, to write about that was really hard, but it was also cathartic. Okay. Cause I was able to go back to that and remember every single thing that happened. I can just as clear as day now. And, you know, I'm a great believer in kind of debriefing from that particular point of view. But I must admit there was times at three o'clock in the morning, you know, my partner was in bed, crashed out and I'm kind of writing away there. And there was one moment I got this real big pain in, in my heart, really, you know, and it was about the kids as well. It was about like, you know, the fact is that, that my partner, my last partner, uh, created this particular alienation space with me and my kids, you know, and, and I felt that I'd really kind of, that that world had been cut off to me. <laughs> it's opened back up again since, which has been fantastic. But when I was writing about it, uh, the sad thing was I really couldn't write too much about my life then, or, you know, as it was like the last part, <clears throat> but it was really about um, how I coped with that stuff, you know, from the family perspective. It was really hard work. So, um, and I, honestly, I, I remember kind of um, pushing my computer away, uh, Karen, like, you know, and then feeling really emotional. <clears throat> and the other, the other one was my brother dying. You know, I can, I can remember it. And I can remember when I was writing about it, um, about the phone calls I used to have. He was on a ventilator, so I had to talk to him for a week. So I'd get on the phone a couple of times a day and would be like, you know, and I remember all of that stuff as well and even seeing him as well. So it was all flooding back to me, you know, as a, as a huge memory. So very, very hard. And, you know, but as I said, it was cathartic as well. It was like I found that I was able to to share it. You know, it's, it's in the book. I've shared it with people and that's it. So I'm happy. And if it can help somebody else out, then great. So your business, um, Zero Risk International, can you tell us a couple of stories from that you've or people you've had to look out for and minimise the risk for them? Well, it's a good one for you, actually. It's a funny one. Um, two of my guys from – so one of my one of the girls and one of the guys both served in, in two commando uh, units in Australia. And I called them up one day and I said, oh, I've got a really good job for you. And they said, what? I said, uh, I don't know how true this is. I said, because I've just been given this uh, call by this, this, uh, you know, this immigration lady. I said, but we've got Matt Damon coming over and we're going to look after him for two weeks. So they went like that. Went, Bloody hell, really? And I went, yeah, 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 yeah. He's coming over. And I didn't even think it was going to work, you know. I thought we would be getting on a wind-up. Anyway, I kind of met him coming through Sydney Airport. I didn't have a chance to say anything, really. You know, He actually kind of was getting processed to go through to uh, Ballina, where they were staying up there. And just before they were going into the uh, the, the, the bubble, as they called it, uh, for COVID, uh, my mate, he's huge, this guy as well, like, you know, and he's, he's decorated soldiers, been blown up a few times. He's got military medals and everything, really. Beautiful guy, uh, Matt Cardinals. And he, he says to me, he goes, what are we going to do in there for two weeks? And I turned around and I said, you're going to look after him. And I, and I said to him, I'll tell you what you could do. Why don't you teach him some of your knife fighting skills? And he looked at me and he said, Fuck off. He said at the end of the day, what am I going to teach Jason Bourne about knife fighting? <laughs> and then, and at the end of the actual kind of uh, the gig, all of a sudden, like, you know, he calls me up and he, and no, sorry, Beck, one of the girls, takes the photograph of him by the pool and Matt Dames in the background doing his workout for, for Thor. And uh, Beck turned around and said, check out who's pool bitch today. And he's, he's got his little shades on, his little, his tiny shorts, like, you know, and Matt Damon's in the background going like this, you know. Oh. That's funny. You've had an amazing career, Tony. It really is amazing. And you created an app. Yo, yes. Yeah. Talk about the app. This car. Yeah. 
it was blown up by the Israelis and our BBC team were in here, but they got out. One guy stayed in there, unfortunately, and uh, was killed. So the app itself stems from this incident back in 2003, oh. I think it was, May 2003. Yeah. Or 2000. And then the interesting thing was that I found out that this car in this area in Lebanon um, it was one of many cars that was being targeted by the Israelis. Okay. And what they did, they put a high energy round in here and caused a flame, huge, big explosion, and it went on mm -hmm. fire. But the app to me was a website that I started, and it was to actually tell journalists exactly where some of the actual problem areas were and mm -hmm. to avoid them. That was my main start, really. And then the idea of the app grew. And in 2016, uh, I went into the Holy Artisan Cafe attack in Dhaka, mm -hmm. and uh, I was there the day after, uh, where I think there was 16 or 20 people killed, expats were killed by uh, Bangladeshian uh, terrorists, uh, beheaded, stabbed, slashed, the whole thing. And it was right next to the Australian embassy. And I thought to myself, I've still got the website, but I'd like to develop an app. So I came back to Australia and I actually kind of contacted a, uh, two guys who actually, who do all of our tech stuff now anyway. And they developed it. I said, all I want is there's one, one screen, okay, and I want to create an, uh, an intelligence team to report on things around the world. That's all. So we get like these little pin drops from you. We got the best intelligence. The app has been an absolute lifesaver because it not only has uh, all of these alerts 24-7 dropped as little dots on the map, it gives you a radius as well. So if there's a bomb blast, it will tell you within two kilometers avoid mm -hmm. this area. Uh, then on top of that, uh, we've actually got all of the embassies listed, all of the actual hotels listed, all of the hospitals listed, and uh, so much so that recently a, a young kid was complaining of his uh, hands were be becoming quite numb when he was on a gap year. And uh, what we did is we actually said to him, get your app now, and he got the app to press on, on hospitals, and the hospital was two streets next to him that we'd vetted. So he went straight over to that hospital and he goes, had I not known that, I would have been struggling and I wouldn't have gone into a hospital that we would have thought would, you know, has been recognized. So the app's evolved. We've got a check-in facility now, which when you press it, everyone, you know, in your family, anyone in your business or whatever, if it's set up for business, uh, gets this particular uh, map, tells you exactly where they are. And it's tracked every 10 minutes. And we can tell the phone strength and the signal strength and also the battery strength on the phone. And then following on from there, we've got e-learning platforms now where you've actually got little small clips of a video content on self-defense, on dealing with the car crash and what you can do you now. So it's, it's grown hugely. <laughs> so this app isn't an expensive. Now, so what we do is two things to be honest with you, Karen. We, for the corporates themselves, they go on a retainer and they not, they don't just get the app as well. They get all of our global risk support, all of our guys with boots on the ground. Uh, we rescue a lot of people around the world. We get in touch with various contacts to help them out. You know, we pre-plan different things for, for companies. We've got all the intelligence reports around different areas and we pinpoint, uh, countries that people can invest in safely and the ones that they can't really, oh. um, and forecast risk as well. So what's going to happen in that country within the next five years? So that's on a, a retainer package, but it became so successful, we made it available to the public and you can see it on the website. And when you go on the website, you can download it for 20 bucks a year, $20. Wow. You know, the price of a, a movie ticket, as someone said the other day, like, you know, so at, at the end of the day, you get peace of mind for the year. Okay that you're traveling and it doesn't matter if you're traveling overseas, you could be going to uncle Annie's in kind of, uh, you know, the back and beyond in Alice Springs or, you know, Northern territories, whatever it works everywhere. We've got to finish up, but can you just give me five points? If I'm traveling five tips for eliminating risk. First and foremost. Okay. I would say we'll start with the medical side of it. Okay. You need to have all of your inoculations in place. You need to make sure you've got your anti-mosquito spray and, oh. you've got your hand, and you've got your hand gel. Okay, so us as a company, Zero Risk, we actually kind of promote that through our company and we sell it. So mm -hmm. we've got a pack, a travel pack that people can buy and it's based on our experience and our skill. And uh, we've also got uh, first aid packs. So that's the next thing. Next thing is to get yourself or to look at our app, download the app and look at our skill set on the app. And it's got a basic first aid course there for you obviously get yourself on a first aid course as well. It's also got a session on occupational violence. So it tells you from levels one to verbal judo all the way through to knife attack, 
what you can and can't do. That's in the app. Okay. It's very, very good. And it's based on our operational skills that we give to Qantas and we give to Jetstar and all these people that do travel on a regular basis. Mm-hmm. Third thing you need to do is to set the app up. So you've actually got all of your contacts there that in the event of an emergency and you've got one chance of pressing that button that you know for a fact that the people know, first of all, where you are and secondly, what to do. And that's the next thing with zero risk is that what we do is we offer that as an additional support service for leisure travelers. So for a fee, they get the app, but we also get us as well in the event of emergency. Mm-hmm. Um, the next thing I, I would suggest as well is making sure that, you know, your documentation is spot on with the visas and everything else for that matter. And finding out really before you go just exactly what is going on in that country by looking at the app, by, you know, researching things online and also making sure that, you know, that you've actually kind of checked into a really good hotel or guest house or whatever. Um, and then from there, is when you're traveling around, okay, be, just be very, very careful of traveling late at night and also follow your instinct. If it feels you're in a tuk-tuk, okay, or a taxi and it doesn't feel right, okay, take a photograph and send it back to your family and make sure that your family know where you are. Okay, that's a, that's a good thing and press check in. If you're on the app and you have a problem, press emergency help, okay, and we will actually kind of start to work out a way of helping you out. Well, Tony... Tony Loughram from Zero Risk International. Wow, what an interview. I've loved it. <laughs> You're a clever man. <laughs> well, I try, but uh, clever I don't think. But at the end of the day, I'm, I'm passionate about the, the subject of, of protection and safety as well, for sure. Do, do you want to protect me on my next trip? Yeah, sure. <laughs> I should have had you in Mongolia when I was there recently, you know, riding a bike through Western Mongolia. <laughs> Look, Tony, thank you so much. Congratulations on your book. I know that people can get it at Amazon. Is there anywhere else they can get your book? What I was going to say is that, you know, for people who uh, are interested, there's, you know, I've just found this out today as well. For those who can't really afford much in life and, you know, everyone's gone through a bit of a pinch point, uh, you can get it available in in libraries uh, as well as a kind of spot shopping which is good. But also it's big W it's, uh, in the airports now it's, it's flooding the airports, which is great. Uh, it's, it's in Dimmicks, uh, it's in some of the other bookstores. Um, so just, you know, hunt it down, have a look, sorry, breaking news yeah. for you. The publisher, uh, has, has done a joint venture. Echo publishing has joint, joint ventured with Bonnier in UK. And I've been asked to do the, um, the audio book for it. The, awesome. you know, yeah. So I didn't realize what audience that you've got there. You know, it's kind of significant. That's a pretty global one. The reason I mentioned Amazon is they listen to the podcast. They can actually go to Amazon. And yeah, as you said, it'll be an audio book. So they can just keep their eye out for it. That was a good point because basically um, the guys in, in the United States and then my family in the UK and different others have booked it through Amazon. And, you know, it's, it's been great. They've actually been able to get hold of it. One, someone turned around to me and said it was sold out on Amazon and they're waiting for a kind of more orders coming through or whatever. So I'm hoping that's well, a that's good Well, that's big time. That must mean you're bloody good. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. And for, and for a scouser from Liverpool who couldn't actually get his English O-level, I keep wanting to think, that, you know. That's right. Rain. You, you know, 18-year-old <laughs> self, take that. <laughs> Yeah, I'm on my travels, baby. That's it. I'm going. So thanks, Tony Loughram. It's amazing. Story from Tony, who has lived a truly adventurous life and sometimes quite perilous, emerging as an authority on risk management. And you can delve more into his experiences through his book, Zero Risk Management. For more captivating stories from the live events, Consider joining the community in the private members area and treating yourself to a backstage pass. Discover more incredible stories shared by ordinary people at www.thestoryroom.au. Become a member for the cost of two cups of coffee a month. It's like $10 Australian. And if you enjoyed today's episode or you have an inspirational story, visit the website and share it with us. And a big thank you to Tony Loughran for being with us today. And until next time, remember, 
that sharing stories does change lives. So keep sharing stories and we'll catch you the next episode. Thank you for tuning in to Sharing Stories, Changing Lives. We understand that sharing stories is an awe-inspiring way to connect with others and make a positive impact on people's lives. If you're interested in getting more involved in our community and connecting with people who share your interests, we'd like to invite you to support us by purchasing a backstage pass. You can do this by visiting our website at www.thestoryroom.au. It's affordable, costing about the same as two cups of coffee each month. With the Backstage Pass, you'll gain access to workshops and exclusive content, including videos from our live events. We firmly believe in the incredible power of storytelling. And with your support, we can continue to show that sharing stories changes lives. Don't miss out on this transformative experience. Come with us on this incredible storytelling adventure. 